This is the Rad Mars Podcast, Episode 4. I'm Andy Mindler. And I'm Brendan Trombley. I'm Trevor Williams. And I'm Andrew Ford. Awesome. We did it again! Fucking man. Yeah, it's got a cadence up and then a down. You made it very musical, Ford. Thanks. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) All right. Why don't we get started with my topic this week, which is I couldn't think of one and just kind of went off of again. I was scrolling through TikTok and it reminded me of an interest that has come up now and again, um, which is quote unquote, I'm making air quotes in my hand, true ghosts slash scary stories and kind of like creepypastas along with that. Though not so much creepypastas, it's just kind of part of it. Things I'm referring to specifically are like around Halloween time, uh, Jezebel, the website, usually does a submission where they ask for people to submit their like own personal scary stories or something that's happened to them. They're presented as true events, uh, but I mean, usually they're probably not and a lot of times they're kind of just people writing but i i really enjoy them for some reason uh something about the uh the like thin veil of it being potentially true and i was talking to my sister about this and a lot of times people recommend to be like true crime i kind of bounce off of true crime because a lot of times it's like a very sanitized retelling of some kind of gruesome murder it it, it lacks a bit of Fun. <laughs> so you, you prefer the opposite. You, you prefer you prefer the the more gruesomed up version of something that may or may not be well, true. Well, the fun thing about like the stories post the like Jezebel um is that a lot of times they're first person descriptions of some kind of fantastical or like scary thing that happened to them, but because they're the ones telling it, you kind of know that it resolves in a way where they weren't say killed. Or injured in some particular way, so there it's there's like a level of like fun and suspension of disbelief to it, which kind of makes it like fun to just kind of like plow through ten to twenty of these things. And it reminded me of probably the very first creepy pasta on the internet, which was Ted's Caving Page, or it's now known as like Ted the Caver. Yeah, yeah. Ted the Caver. Um, around like two thousand and one. I loved that story. Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't even know how I found it. My brother showed it to me and it was like an angel fire website. And because nothing had ever been really done like it before, it was presented as fact and kind of released over time, like a proto blog of this guy's events as he was spelunking a cave and the like slowly uncovering of weird stuff until ultimately it just like he stops posting and it ends and it wasn't until, I guess, like years later that the guy emerged and kind of let it be known that it was all fiction. But I wasn't around for that. I like only was there for the releasing of it and like experiencing it uh, kind of like a live thing. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you, you experienced it. Like, were you actually coming back to the site yeah. and getting updates? Because I only ever experienced it by the time his last post had. had no, yeah, we were like coming back because. We were like, what is going on? This is crazy. So at the time, yes. did you take it seriously or did you sort of like, you know, take it from a grain of, with a grain of salt in the very beginning? I mean, I was pretty young, uh, so I took it very seriously. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's like a, it goes 
it goes for such a long time where like it's a little creepy but nothing like i don't know overtly i don't know like supernatural or whatever is happening so it's kind of plausible that this guy's you know just something something weird but explainable is happening in this cave and he he's just sort of obsessed with it and the the story kind of is is sort of him coming back to the same cave multiple times and getting more progress in sort of delving into it over time and and each time you know his encounter with this the spooky thing or whatever that's inside gets a little more intense each and every time it's just such a great great ramp up of the spooky factor uh with each post yeah but yeah it's totally plausible up until you know probably the last two or three posts and i think that's kind of what i like about all these supposedly like true ghost and scary stories is they kind of start in like a very mundane way and are usually written with a little bit of jank to them. Like they're not clean stories, you know, they're told kind of haphazardly events kind of unfold in, you know, a natural way where things don't go perfectly. Um, And a lot of times they don't resolve cleanly. And the ones that do resolve in such a way that it like ties the story together, you're like, "Uh, this person fucking wrote this. (laughs) Yeah, part of it is is making it feel like a like a like a real thing and a real person, and so it can't be like overproduced. So like a janky Angel Fire website is the perfect platform. Right, exactly. And I think like that's like part of the fun of it is like the suspension of disbelief, and also why I don't really like creepypasta terribly well because of the fact that it's from the get go being like, oh, this is just a scary story I wrote. Except they. Creepypasta just then come off to me as poorly written, scary stories. It's interesting. So much of it depends on what the expectations are that you bring with you to the story that you're reading. And the context that you encounter the story is very important. Then. Yeah, I think that plays uh, a large part of it. There's a couple like, well, so like nowadays, right, the, the, I guess the medium of the everyday internet user is more like a social media site or something like that. So I've definitely seen a lot of this sort of thing, um, you know, in Reddit in different corners, uh, the one that the one that, that is kind of I guess closest to something like Ted the Caver is uh, No Sleep. Do you guys know about No Sleep? I've heard of it. I've listened to a bit of. It's got a podcast, right? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's just a it's a subreddit. Uh, maybe someone went off and spun that out into their own podcast. But it's essentially redditors telling stories to each other, and kind of one of the quote unquote rules of the website or of the of the subreddit is like your commenting has to sort of buy in to the reality of the story that's being presented. So and it, so everyone knows it's fictional, but they play along in the comments and and usually these these stories are multi-part and the and the user, you know, comes back and and you know, provides their updates or or their part twos or whatever. It, it's got there's a there's a few pretty awesome ones out there. One of my favorite ones uh, is like a guy who describes a whole variety of of crazy things that happened as a forest ranger, you know, including um, uh, this like recurring motif of empty staircases just appearing in the forest and how you should never ever mm. climb them, um, but also just a, a various unexplainable gruesome things that might have happened to like park goers visiting the park that he works at, um, and yeah, when once again being told all from the perspective as if he really was a park ranger and these things really were happening and the other redditors commenting, um, playing along with that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. But again, like that, like breaks that weird thin barrier of like, we all like agree and know up ahead of time that these are completely works of fiction. I like the idea that like you're submitting something and it's supposedly 
real. And I th- I think the other thing is like in the Jezebel like list ones, like you read them and some of them are very plausible. Like they don't have like any supernatural elements or anything. Like they're just like creepy series of events or something. And you're like, oh, that is a thing that could happen. And I think like the fact that those are intermixed with ones that have like some slight paranormal shit helps to kind of like solidify them as a whole as being like having more, I don't know, uh, weight to them. But, you know, at the end of the day, you walk away going, there's a, these are probably all fake, but there's kind of like a, a level of fun of like buy-in. So as you, as you described this, two programs in particular come to mind um, that I'm curious what your reactions were towards. The first one is Blair Witch Project, which, you know, obviously it's well known at this point, but I remember when it came out, people were like, oh, yeah, it's real, kind of, sort of. And I mean, it seems like there was that sort of uncertainty that uh, you describe as appealing in this medium. So how did you like that? Uh, again, Blair Witch hit at a time where I was like real young to the point where like I don't think I was even allowed to go see it. So I, I don't think I've ever actually seen Blair Witch because by the time I was like old enough to and like had enough interest to see it all of that like stuff about it being real had blown over and it was well known that it was just kind of like a movie and stuff and but i i do recall that whole fanfare around it being like a very like a real documentary that was done by real people and people were freaking out about it um i think had i been of age to be a part of it i would have really been up my alley one thing i was trying to describe was my feelings on scary stories and like my relationship to horror mediums in general like horror movies and thriller movies i'm not like a super big fan of or like a buff on them because movies that try to elicit like a genuine fear reaction generally one don't work on me and is also not particularly appealing I look more for like a creep factor, which I try to like, I guess I describe it as like something where, you know, it kind of like gets into your imagination and like tingles away and starts playing with like a what if and like, I don't know. It's one of those things that like, I feel like as a creative person being creeped out, like it, it like feeds that imagination, like, like a delicious meal and like gets my brain churning away. I don't know. Does anybody, does that make any sense, any sense to anyone? Cause uh, yeah, like I'm curious what your thoughts are like if there is a difference to you between like uh, like something that causes fear or like is a scary or horror thing versus something that has more of like a creepiness to it. Yeah, like horror is kind of actually more multifaceted than like you would, you know, first come to think like like kind of like you said, you got some of the uh, you, like, like that's why it's got like subgenres like slashers versus like you know, psychological thrillers. I don't know if you consider them the same or part of the horror genre or not. Um, the one that you you started reminding me of, Andy, when you were talking, was uh, Paranormal Activity. Um, we watched that, like me and my friends watched that. I think it came out in college, when we were in college or, or shortly after. Uh, did you, have you guys seen that one? Yes. Mm-hmm. I've not. I, I love that one. Um, I think it got went off the rails with the sequels, of course. But um, the it was such a simply done like concept, and, and the creep there was definitely the a major creep factor versus just like straight up horror um weirdly because that stuck in my brain and i kept thinking about it later of like what if there was a malicious entity that was intelligent and not human and it was out to get you like what what if a demon was real because that's kind of what the thing was it was like a demon of some kind 
And for some reason, I hadn't really seriously considered the, that reality until this movie sort of made me suspend my disbelief hard enough to, to conceive of it. And that's actually a really terrifying concept. So I feel like it taught me something about myself that like I, I might be extremely afraid if I ever encountered something I thought had human-like intelligence but wasn't human and didn't therefore have the same human, I guess, like sensibilities, you know, so like an alien or a demon or, a, or an artificial intelligence, like all these things sort of fall into that category. I learned that I was more scared of that concept than I realized. Yeah, I I kind of feel that. And I think one of the things that at least the first Paranormal Activity did well was the way it presented its storytelling was kind of in a very straightforward, not super polished way where it's like, I think they just had like cameras set up in every room or whatever, and they would just kind of like cut between them, like security system style. Yeah, it was suppo- it was supposedly edited together from the security footage of the house. Right. Yeah, and like you know, you know it's a movie, but just the way it's presented has a little bit of jank to it, and you're like, it, it allows you to suspend your disbelief a little bit. I was working at a job um, one summer where I could just sit on the computer and like do whatever I wanted, and then every once in a while I would like go and deliver mail across campus and so i just plowed through i think like three of those movies in a row and yeah they kind (laughs) of they go bizarre places but um that those were those were fun to watch when you're describing this my mind sort of goes to gothic horror in terms of talking about sort of like malevolent intelligences that are you know not human because that was one of those things that always sort of resonated with me back in like college and high school and whatnot. Um, Lovecraft mythos, yes. um, stuff like that. Those always sort of like stuck with me because I think going back to the earlier discussion about multiple genres of horror, like I feel like early video games like Resident Evil sort of like got all of the jump horror out of me or like all the jump scares that it possibly could get out of me, at which point I was very desensitized yeah. towards that sort of thing. It's like, you can only have dogs jumping in through windows so many times before you're like, okay, there's a window here. I wonder what's going to happen when I walk past it. Oh, yeah, a dog. Ah, fuck a dog. <laughs> now you must mash A a billion times to get it off your face. Exactly. Whereas I felt like one of the interesting things about gothic horror is the fact that it's presented in this way where it's, you know, it is this sort of like almost unknowable reality that is you know very similar to ours but you know inhabited by these malevolent entities that are sort of beyond human understanding and yet you know interact with people on a regular basis i was thinking about this and uh i was like you know that creep factor i feel like lives in like a space of like the sense of the unknown and like the and reality like it lives kind of like in the space between there I was also thinking about my relationship to various horror movies and things like that and properties such as I love Lovecraft and, you know, I also love things like uh, Event Horizon. Mm. Um, That traumatized me as a kid. I couldn't really like put I couldn't put my finger on like how these all connect together. Um, But like these are these are kind of like these things that like when I watch them, they they kind of creep me out. They don't like scare me like I don't feel fear, but like they feed into that like part of my imagination of like, wow, that's really like weird and interesting and kind of creepy. Yeah, I feel like part of what makes gothic horror interesting in my mind is the sheer amount of imagination behind it, because 
at the end of the day, coming up with some sort of like, you know, scary entity that is beyond human understanding and then conveying that in a way that is somewhat believable as opposed to just being like, oh, yeah, and he didn't understand and you won't understand and so on and so forth. It's like you have to tease the audience with enough in order to like allow them to somewhat get their head around it, but, you know, leave enough up to their imagination where at the end of the day, it is still unknowable, unthinkable. And I think Event Horizon, the Cthulhu mythos and the like, did a very good job of that. And I'm thinking in contrast to like a roller coaster, for example, which is, you know, a very different sort of, you know, fear. Um, and I don't especially like them. Um, and they scare me. Um, I apparently was less afraid of them, you know, when I was growing up, but I'm at the point where it's like the rickety sort of like wooden roller coaster rails. I hate that stuff. But at the same time, like Gothic horror, like it does scare me as well, but it's something that I find it's an enjoyable sort of fear for whatever reason. <laughs> when I ride roller coasters, I'm just scared of getting motion sickness. I, I be, I've become less uh, resilient to roller coasters as I've gotten older. And it's actually a sad thing. Like, I don't know. They don't elicit fear in me. Like, just they're just fun. I think the fear that I feel for roller coasters is more of like a genuine bodily fear of like dismemberment or like physical injury. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's real. Which, yeah, I feel like is a very real thing. Versus, like, when I'm watching some kind of medium of, like, a movie or reading a story or something, like, I don't, I don't, like, get scared. Like, I don't have, I don't have a fear reaction. I get, like, I don't know. Like, it either creeps me out or I just kind of am, like, eh. like, a lot of slashers and stuff don't, don't give me, they don't, like, creep me out and they don't, like, make me afraid. Instead, I start, like, picking them apart as, like, a movie, and then I, like, kind of see through the veil of it, and it, I, I don't see the appeal of them for some reason. Like, it just doesn't work on me. I don't know. That's why I'm, like, I, I like scary things and creepy things, but, you know, I guess, like, what some people, like, like into horror uh, doesn't attract me for some reason. I'm curious what your reaction was to the video game Dead Space, because in uh, my mind, it feels like it checks a bunch of these boxes that we're talking about here. The first Dead Space I loved, I actually worked with a bunch of people that worked on Dead Space, which like I was super jazzed about. I, I thought the first one did such a great job of building atmosphere and like creeping out. I think the later games struggled because, you know, they tried to just explain everything so much that it kind of lost that mysterious quality and then it just became kind of like an shoot the alien kind of game yeah and beyond that i think that the other like the sequels tended to sort of veer more towards the action side of things rather than the sort of suspense and sort of fear side right, of things yeah. like the first one like you're not equipped as a soldier you're basically using like mining instruments because you're on a mining vessel in order to try to keep yourself alive against a completely unknown enemy and I agree with you that by far, like, the first one was my favorite of the series. And in my mind, it's kind of like the golden standard by which I think of, like, you know, horror video games in this day and age. Because, like, yeah, I always felt kind of like, you know, I wasn't really equipped against the world that we were up against in that game. It's like there's so much going on that you don't understand. And I absolutely agree with you that 
the problem with sort of returning to a you know a horror world like that in sequels is that the more you explain, the less mysterious it is, and it feels like the less pull it has over you afterward. And by the third one, it just kind of felt like a generic action video game, and yeah, it didn't grab me the same way. Yeah, I I actually really liked the second one for a lot of the storytelling that they were doing because they introduced a lot of like the whole like the sanity type issues coming on and i think they could have pushed on that further but i also really liked the way that they were trying to tell the story with like more kind of cutscenes and stuff like that and i thought the cutscenes were really well done and building character and they had enough mysteries left to kind of bring you along with the story but by the end of that game like things started to get explained away too much so then you kind of knew what was going on and then by the third game, it just kind of went off the rails, unfortunately. One of the things I found very interesting about the second game as well is in the first game, you're playing a silent protagonist, like you never say anything the entire time. Whereas the second one, Isaac becomes a character unto himself. He starts saying things and interacting. And it was just an interesting change to do that mid-series, since typically uh, you know, video game series will stick with one or the other. Well, while we're talking about video games... I know you wanted to talk about the Civilization, <laughs> oh, Jesus, the Civilization series of games, which is fairly interesting because I was just talking to Matt Porter, another Rad Mars member, Rad guy, about the Civilization series. Uh, he's been really into it lately, and I have never played any of the Civilization games. I come from like my my strategy game background comes from like all of the Age of Empire games and then playing StarCraft II, Wings of Liberty, like getting super hardcore into that and then haven't touched anything really since. And I was like, is Civilization anything like any of those games? I, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm a kind of old motherfucker. Um, and uh, I think it wasn't the first video game I played, but it was early on after I got a PC. I played the original Civilization 1. Oh. Yeah. OG right here. And I loved it. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, although I was also really bad at it the first couple times I played it. Like, one of the things that, about Civilization 1 is that there was no worker unit, which they had added in later ones. You had to use settlers to build tile improvements. But the first couple times I played through the game, I didn't realize that at all. And so I never improved a single tile. I just built settlers and I built military units. And that was it. Never modified the map. Can you, um, can you explain to me a little bit? Like, I, I guess I really don't understand anything about the Civilization game. Is it like Age of Empires where it's like a real-time strategy thing where you have units that you're like clicking around and like putting, pulling, telling them where to go? No, it's turn-based. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's a turn-based strategy game, and I think it was actually originally pitched by Sid Meier as a board game. But the thing is, the rules were really complicated, and there's a lot of bookkeeping to be done. And so at the end of the day, um, he had the idea of turning it into a video game instead. Okay, let a computer deal with it. Pretty much. And that was a very good idea, all things considered. That's really funny because I feel like if he had pitched it in the modern day, they would have just made a convoluted ass board game because that's we've got tons of those now. Yeah, people are real into that shit. And on top of that, there are convoluted ass civilization board games now based on the video game series. So I kind of feel like it's come full circle at this point. <laughs> uh, 
Um, although I, I do feel like I'll probably loop back to this later. I felt like there's actually some, you know, something good about having to try to simplify the game to the point where human bookkeeping becomes possible. Um, because I don't remember what version of the Civilization board game I played. I've only ever played it once, but it maybe twice, but it was a good game. Um, I was just bad at it as well because I didn't know what I was doing. But anyway, the, the way that the game works, um, as mentioned before, it's a turn-based strategy game. And you basically start with like a settler and maybe some sort of basic explorer unit. And um, it's similar to Age of Empires uh, insofar as you research technologies, you expand, you build military units, and you sort of like, you know, fight with neighbors. I'd say that it's probably less militaristic than Age of Empires um, insofar as there's a lot more diplomacy um, and sort of trading, and you can actually beat the game without ever declaring war on other people. Fuck that. I would say at the heart of the game, though, it is really sort of like a military game, and like, although you can beat it without, you know, engaging in combat much, that's probably not the best way to actually do it. Like, the game, most of the features of it are built around military conquest. Kill them all! Salt the earth! Yeah. that That's always an option. I played, uh, a couple of the older ones. I think they actually the funny thing is that I uh, I had like one um, like summer class like when I was a kid I was maybe thirteen or fourteen that was like learn history by playing Civilization mm. the game, which was kind of funny because we didn't actually really learn that much history we mostly just played video <laughs> games. <laughs> so I think it was like I think it was like Civ three we played primarily, and I think I was the first person in the class to actually win a game by doing like the science victory. Like, not actually conquering anybody, but doing, like, launch a rocket into space and you win. So I was very proud of myself. Can you play Civilization, like, multiplayer, like, against other friends and stuff? Or is it just a single-player campaign against, like... like, You can play it multiplayer. It's it's a doozy of a commitment, Uh, but you can. Yeah. (laughs) It's It's like Risk, except more... Oh, Christ. At the end of it, you, like, end up without a friend? Yeah. I mean, maybe not, but I should never. I've never done a full game like multiplayer. Can you like save it and come back to it later? Because usually games take many hours to play. You can, and I've actually played a couple of multiplayer games of Civilization over the years. I don't think the first one had multiplayer, um, but I'd say the second game in the series that I played, or the second yeah game in the series that I played was uh, Alpha Centauri. And at that point, I think it was based off of the Civilization 3 engine, but I'm not positive, but it had multiplayer and actually fairly well-founded multiplayer. Um, Though I will say that the design of the game was such that didn't lend itself well towards multiplayer games. So, for example, you would design units. um, And so that sort of customization meant that each individual turn would take a long time. and like you're saying, uh, it was a real commitment. But I ended up playing a couple of games of it with friends in college, um, and we did end up doing things like nuking each other's cities, you know, committing atrocities against each other. Um, friendships didn't end, but um, it was also very hard to ever sort of bring down the leader, no matter what sort of means you were bringing into the game, and what atrocities you were willing to commit. How how long were these games usually? Like how long is the just like a solo game usually a solo game i'd say you can probably get done in like a weekend um like if you know what you're doing you can obviously beat it much faster 
but the game, the multiplayer games I was talking about definitely were like whole weekend affairs. Um, and we did like when you say that, like how many hours, like are you taking like 12 hour, like session, like all together, 48 hours yeah. consecutively. I would say it roughly took like 20 hours, something like that. Fuck. <laughs> so like these were serious commitments, but also like, I guess I was sort of desensitized to these sorts of things growing up because uh, here's a real doozy. Uh, Master of Orion 2 was one of my favorite games growing up. And that actually had really good multiplayer support, but it took ridiculously long to actually play. And I think that like, I think he's like a network emulator over modem or something like that. It was crazy, but suffice it to say, I played all sorts of games online and multiplayer that I have no business playing multiplayer. Man, if I tried to play that and a session took 20 fucking hours, it would take me like two weeks to finish it, I think. Maybe more. It would take me a month <laughs> to put 20 hours into something. <laughs> It's pick upable and put downable, you know. Um, I mean, it's got this mental hook of like, oh, just one more turn, but it's turn based. So I mean, you could very easily just sort of play it in like little spurts, which you know that that'll be spread over a long period of time as you, as you play it out. But it like so if you played for like two hours, set it down, and then like didn't come back for for like two days, when you picked it back up, would you be like, what, what the fuck was I last doing? What where am I? Like would that totally screw you over and like? It's very possibly. At that point, would need to start over because this sounds like an impossible game for me. <laughs> you definitely don't have to start over entirely. I mean, yeah, I think I think that if you were in the late game, that might be an issue because, like, I remember even playing like so. I was actually looking through the list of games. I can't remember if I played two or three as a kid. I was leaning towards two because uh, like two is like the magic number of a lot of the games that I played, like SimCity two, Civilization two, etc. And yeah, uh, I remember getting to the late game once and. I was trying to go for the space victory and I don't know how it happened, but I just had like set all of my cities to like building one of the space parts. And I had this like turn towards the end of the game where like I had completely lost track of how many cities were building what parts and my game it suddenly they all built at once. And I had to like dismiss like window after window after window of like, this part's complete. This part's complete. This part's complete. And I was like, I don't even need those anymore. How did I do this to myself? <laughs> The other thing I'd say is that the Civilization series has always had a pretty bad endgame. Um, one of the problems that it suffered from as a series is that the longer the game is going on, the more cities you build, the more individual units you're moving on, the longer each individual turn takes. And by the time you get into endgame, very often it's very clear that you're going to win the game, like you're just dramatically overpowered compared to everyone else. Like you're running around with mechanized infantry and they're trying to hold you off with axemen, that sort of thing. But even still, like the act of going from that point where your victory is basically all but assured to securing the victory itself would take many, many, many hours. And that was one of those things that I always found frustrating with the series. I feel like this is a, I just had like a flashback. I don't know if this is actually from Civilization, but I just had like a vivid flashback of just like waiting for a CPU turn and just watching them move their shitty units in and out of the fog of war just like endlessly because they had so many. And I was just like, get, get on with it. I need to do my turn. Yeah, that that is definitely a thing that happened. I remember that in Civilization 1 in particular with like units just going back and forth for no particular reason. I feel like another feature that's been sort of with most of the Civilization series of video games is not necessarily great artificial intelligence, particularly um, once you got to Civilization 5 and 6, where 
before that, you had the ability to stack as many units on a single tile as you wanted. And in Civ 6, they made it so that only one unit could occupy each tile. And also they switched from going with a sort of rectangular, you know, a square grid system to using hexagons, um, which makes things a lot more complicated with regards to movement. And I felt like the AI never quite caught up with that. And so like the net result of this is that in order to make like higher difficulty levels in the Civ series, what they did is they basically just gave the uh, computer increasing advantages, like starting with multiple cities instead of one and discounts to all of their units and research and things like that. And although I would typically play with a difficulty level where they had some sort of cheating advantage like that, because otherwise the game was too easy, it never sat right with me. I mean, yeah, but that's all, that's the most in-scope way to, in, you know, increase difficulty. Like making AI is actually really hard, expensive. You'd have to sacrifice other features of the game to put in a really good AI. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sort of like trying to trash talk the developers of the game because I still love it, but it was They're definitely garbage. The visible They're trash people. <laughs> I mean, like when you talk about something like, you know, when like StarCraft 1, right, had a cheating AI, like it had um, omniscient knowledge of the map at all times, but... Starcraft 2 they actually had they actually made it so the AI had to scout and had to actually keep into account the fog of war and I imagine that must have been a huge and interesting AI problem to solve and a lot of resources probably went into that building the AI for Star Starcraft 2. Yeah, and I mean if we're talking about sort of having good competitive AI like it was a major research project from I think what was it Starcraft Star Zero or something like that, um the same team that did Alpha Zero and Go Zero or Alpha Basically, the, the team that was working on research for using AI to beat Go and also chess, I think, also spent a lot of time uh, getting StarCraft, a competitive StarCraft AI, and that was apparently a harder problem than, you know, solving Go. <laughs> there are a lot of factors. Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of a, I mean, obviously Go is like a huge decision tree of endless possible moves, but also StarCraft is a game of, you know, limited information and real-time input right so they actually i think they had to actually restrict the amount of moves that the ai could make because if you know real starcraft players are at maximum like 200 to 300 actions per minute if you have an ai like optimally doing that stuff it's going to just crush everybody in every possible battle <laughs> so they had to like limit it to what it could actually do in terms yeah. of like mouse clicks in a minute an ai with perfect macro and micro basically yeah Actually, I remember reading through some of the research paper on this, and I don't think they artificially limited the AI in terms of how many actions it would take per second. They actually just um, basically let it do as many as it could um, that it found useful. And when the agent basically came to sort of equilibrium when they were finished training it, they ended up with... Uh, AI agents that made way fewer actions per second than a human player does. But I also feel like human players typically will make more actions than they need to specifically to boost their APM because it's some sort of badge of pride. Uh, I mean, well, from my like stupidly too much experience of like trying to play StarCraft in a serious way and also watching a lot of pro games, like you'll see them do a lot of bullshit moves at the beginning of the game because they need to warm up their hands for when they actually need to do it. And like in the battles where like they need to do it, they're like, you know, not even close to the optimal movement. Like they actually are doing, you know, hundreds of actions per minute. And like that's they the true esports. Yeah, exactly. 
you have to That's warm fair. up your hand so you can spurge with your mouse a million times a second. Yep. That's why they got those hand warmers, too. Mm. Oh, man. And it's definitely not a problem an AI has to struggle with. Yeah. The other really cool I... thing about the StarCraft AI stuff was that they, I think they seeded it with some, like, human, like, playing it against a human. But, like, I think most of the training of this neural net was actually, like, multiple agents playing against each other. So they kind of developed their own kind of weird strategy and almost, like, it doesn't really play exactly like a person because it just came up with stuff on its own, which is pretty wild. And they had to, then they had to pull the plug because they almost made Skynet. <laughs> the way I recall that they did it is they took a bunch of replays that uh, of human players playing against each other, used that in order to train the neural net to begin with, and then afterward, they used these sort of like basic trained AIs and had them play against each other for additional iterations afterward. But it was a long, convoluted process with lots of different stages and a lot of design that went into it uh, before they actually ended up with a competitive agent. Super cool. I like that. It's such an interesting, it's an interesting mix of different yeah, sources. And and then I can imagine like you can you can take that feedback loop the next step and have the human players learn from the strat weird strategies that the AI developed and incorporate them into their strategies and then retrain the AIs based on that. That'd be awesome. How about we take a break? hear about some gaming hot takes from ford <laughs> thanks yeah i don't say this is for mine i don't know if other people had similar hot takes this is not gonna be that much of a hot take rather than just like a game that i wanted to like more than i did maybe um so i don't know if you guys have played uh, persona 5 um i feel like it's very well recommended and very highly regarded but i feel like i couldn't really get that deep into it um for people who don't know it's like a uh, you know, very Japanese style RPG that is also like kind of a life sim thing. So you're like a high school student who kind of goes into the dungeons of people's minds to try to change their heart for some days. But then there's other days where you have to like go to school and make friends and hang out with your friends and study and stuff. Uh, and it's, it's like a, I mean, it's a good game, but like, it's just so outrageously long and there's so many complicated systems in it. It's just like, why should i play this <laughs> it's like i'm like i'm seriously like i mean i i don't hate it i mean it's still pretty enjoyable but i'm just like does it really justify how long it is so like for reference i'm like 50 hours deep no end <laughs> in sight whatsoever it's so it's so long it's so long and like the overarching plot is just kind of like not really there it's a lot of like individual character stories and stuff and the writing is pretty good it's not great but there's just like so much stuff in the game it's overwhelming and it's like anytime i go to sit down and play something it's like should i play persona it's like i don't really want to anymore so i don't know if anybody else played that but that's my thoughts on it that's really interesting i've never played one but i mean looking online and like listening to podcasts like 
people seem to really be into them and they're like very popular and i've always just been like what are these games like i keep seeing like snippets and like they seem to have a lot of style to them but i i could never figure out just what the fuck they were or why i should play them <laughs> from your description it sounds like i should not play them <laughs> <laughs> i mean i have a question for you ford i mean do you feel like do you feel like to to have you know quote unquote fully experienced the game that you need to beat it like 50 hours of the game means you've probably experienced every single system you've experienced the sort of game loop probably a bunch of times there there may be some interesting story to uncover from here on out but aside from that i mean the game's not going to throw anything crazy new at you as far as concepts goes i feel like you've you've yeah could you just done it read like a wiki article on the story and you one <laughs> yeah i think that's fair i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't feel too bad if i dropped it i've kind of been semi like dropping it and being like well i should try it again um and it, like it is compelling when i pick it up but it's kind of like i'll play it and be really into it for like a day and then just be like okay i'm done and then i don't play it again for like a month um but yeah i think we've kind of talked about this a little bit before but i um just in kind of my former kind of completionist streak i kind of feel a little bit bad about leaving games unfinished which is kind of silly but yeah, I think you're right that I've probably experienced most of everything in the game. It still like was throwing new mechanics out, like fairly like not like major stuff, but like kind of even to the point where like where I was. I think there's even something that I haven't gotten to yet. Like the new character I got like gives you directions and dungeons and stuff, which I haven't even unlocked yet. It's just it's just kind of fucking wild how long it is. I can't I like I kind of can't even fathom like how you can make a game this long. Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out was like the game story-wise starts out with this very dramatic like you know in media res like really dramatic situation i haven't even gotten what? to that point yet like i i haven't even <laughs> i haven't even gotten to the in media race like hook of yet fucking 50 hours deep but I, like that's why i'm like curious like where does the story go that's like the only plot thing that's like keeping me going interested in this game so it sounds like they made a good decision including that then that's I guess crazy. so. Yeah. I wonder what part that in media res even lands on. Is it part of the climax? Then is are you is, are you gonna get the in media res like, you know, unflash freeze frame of the car in midair and then, uh, there's the final boss go or it, or is it like the beginning <laughs> of Act Three, or two? It unfreezes and it's like the title card shows up and it's like the game's starting now and you're like, what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Eternity game. Yeah. I thought it was actually really funny that I think it was Roushi really highly recommended it to me, like breathlessly saying how great it was. I think he also dropped the game at almost the exact same <laughs> point that I did, and I don't think he's not finished it. As we've established, he's the guy who played Par Stanley Parable one iteration and then said, <laughs> okay, I've got it. For you, there is the sunken cost fallacy, which I think at this point you can safely say, I've gotten what I need out of this. I can set it down now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think like I'm cool with kind of if I don't never beat it again, that's fine. But I feel like I almost want to leave it open. It's like if I'm bored one day, maybe I'll maybe I'll come back to it. I don't know. It is it is cool. It's like a like I think like kind of you can kind of getting at it. it's like very kind of stylistically really cool. The graphics are great. Uh, the music is really awesome. But just like gameplay wise, there's just so much shit in it. Also, did I add that there has like an entire like Pokemon type like battle right. system attached to it? Because it's got that too. <laughs> I feel like the heart of the matter is the question, what is it that you're trying to get out of these games? What is it that you enjoy? 
since like, you know, when you're playing a video game, there's so many different parts of it that can appeal to you. It can be the plot, it can be the systems, it can be the art, it can be the music. And admittedly, after you've played through it for 50, you know, hours, you've got through a lot of that. Um, but the parts that you haven't gotten through, like the plot, you can definitely look up on Wikipedia, but it's definitely not the same as actually experiencing it. Yeah, I feel like for me, since like an RPG, I would be more interested in the plot, I guess, just because like the gameplay mechanics of RPGs nowadays for me, like aren't that interesting of like, you know, this is kind of, this is kind of like a, you know, relatively straightforward turn-based RPG, obviously with this weird Pokemon stuff attached to it. But yeah, just it's it's frustrating that it's like I kind of want there to be a, like a compelling story to it, and like the, the like I said, the writing's decent, but it's very much like episodic, kind of very character focused thing. That's like here's a dungeon, and it's focused on this character, and now it's done, and now that has no bearing on anything else. It's like okay, what else is there? To There's no like overarching narrative that like ties them all together. I mean, there kind of is, but there there is a little bit of that, but it's not very strong. It's like you get actually, I mean, with the in media wrestling, you get a little bit hooks of that because it's kind of like very mild spoiler. You kind of like, since you're like the, the phantom thieves of hearts and you're kind of trying to change people's minds by going into their brains, basically, <laughs> to stop them from doing some terrible corrupt behavior or whatever. The, the in media arrest hook is like you kind of getting caught by the police doing something. And like you get these little scenes of like you beginning to interrogated. But like again, and that's just kind of like, it's almost as like a weird. It kind of summarizes what, what you did or like who you meet or like the interrogator asks you about some character and then that character shows up immediately. But like, there's just not, like I can't even talk about it because I don't know how this shit is connected yet. 50 hours and I don't <laughs> know how to talk about it. So wait, what are the, what are they, like what are the Pokemon? Are they your friends that you made along the way and then you shove them in a Pokeball and then you throw them out in a battle later? <laughs> not quite. You, um, you, like the enemies, you can basically capture the enemies you fight and, um, use them to fight so like every like the the title the titular aspect of the game is like the persona is like your your friend characters have like their persona which is like some um you know some weird like creature kind of weird representation of them that fights for them but you as joker as the main character, you can <laughs> but like you as the main character you can use any persona so that's like and like any of the enemies you can just kind of Basic, which instead of like capturing them with a Pokeball, you kind of like talk them into joining you, and then you can kind of swap between different personas in battle, and they have different spells and stuff. So that's cool. Yeah, it's a it's a lot, it's a lot of stuff. I feel like this is a great game for like a younger person who has a shitload of free time, <laughs> and like you know, I for an adult, I still I feel like I have a lot of free time, especially nowadays. But like, <laughs> I just don't really feel the need to go like so deep into this kind of game that I'm playing for like hundred hours. And I don't really have any problem with playing super long games. It's just like this isn't really hooking me enough to play it. Like uh, on the other side of the coin, like Death Stranding was a fucking ridiculously long game, but I loved every minute of it. And I played it for like almost 100 hours or something. And I don't mind playing it for that long because it was great. Yeah, I think about it and I feel like I'm way less likely to complete the games that I'm playing nowadays than I did when I was younger. I think both, as you're saying, because I had more free time back then and also because I think there was less of a willingness to actually sort of like give up and sort of like move on from a game that I wasn't particularly enjoying. Like part of me just wanted to actually see it through to the end. And I feel like I'm the same way when I'm reading a book and I don't like that book. I like to think about it as when when I was younger and it was like when I had like a Super NES or like an NES or something, we'd get like a game for a holiday or I don't know, whatever. Someone gave us a game 
that was our one game for the next few months. <laughs> if you stopped playing that, you had nothing else to do. So it was like, well, it's either this, like beat this or do nothing. So we're beating this game. <laughs> yeah, games are expensive. Console games. We didn't have unlimited free browser and phone games on top of the, the sort of top tier console yeah. experiences. Now there's like a million games and I'm just like, I don't have time for any of these. Well, uh, would we want to do... Hey! Check this out. Check this out. I need to think about it, though. Actually, I do, too. Huh. I mean, I could just say EVE Online. Go for it. Right? <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and I think this would be a great tie-in to a future topic, but EVE Online is an old-ass space game. Um, it's, like, been around for, like, over 15 years, uh, but it's got this incredible player-driven sandbox kind of world. So, like, it's an, it's an MMO, right? It's an a massively multiplayer online game but utterly unique compared to all the other ones, uh, right? It's like World of War, like most of the games are basically clones of World of Warcraft in some way or another. Um, this just takes so many of the things and just flips it on its head, and partially because I think it existed before World of Warcraft or it came out around the same time maybe. And um, uh, it, it has this like uh, incredible economic model because it was co-designed by economists. And so it's just, it ends up being this extremely rich like, um, and deep, uh, like immersive experience. I, I don't know. It, it 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 doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a um, amusement park kind of game, like a World of Warcraft style MMO is, where it's kind of like tailored for your like enjoyment and 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 kind of bite sized and digestible. And I don't know, like too easy. I don't know something something about those games that they don't rub they rub me the wrong way these days. They don't like. They don't give me that same sense of wonder that um, like original EverQuest and EVE Online give me, like that I'm in a living, breathing world. Um, and, and that's it's why I, I'm really, really into this game. Um, so yeah, I would say, hey, check it out. Uh, it's got a free-to-play model nowadays. Um, I, it, you're definitely, if you're in a free account, you definitely are super limited in what you can, like there's a point where like you, you kind of just have to upgrade your account. But um, if you... If you do it right, you can actually pay for your own subscription by amassing enough in-game currency. That's what I currently do for two accounts, actually. But yeah, I would say check it out, EVE Online. If you're into um, sci-fi, if you're into immersive online worlds, uh, if you're into leadership and <laughs> community building, there's lots of that to be had. Um, so yeah, check it out, Neat. EVE Online. Ford, what have you got for us? Sure, I'll uh, loop back on the horror segment and recommend this movie called Lake Mungo. It's from, I think, 2007. It's kind of a sort of found footage-ish kind of purports to be a documentary kind of claims to be real sort of thing and it feels very real and it's kind of the first one of the first horror movies in a long time to kind of actually scare mm. me which is pretty rare i watch a lot of horror movies and i'm generally not scared yeah. to watch them anymore so this is kind of a, a ghost story in kind of a documentary format that's quite creepy and i'm not going to spoil it anymore but check it out lake mungo trevor you got anything 
hey, check this out. Uh, going on the sort of theme of horror movies, uh, one of my favorite ones from, God, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was the remake of the uh, Dawn of the Dead, um, which was one of the scariest movies I've seen in a long time. It's clearly a zombie flick. Um, and, you know, a lot has been done, and I feel like we are post-peak zombie uh, at this point. Um, but it's a fun, well, it's a scary movie, and it's enjoyable, and I liked it, and it was well done, and I don't have a lot more to say about it than that. All right. Uh, my thing to check out is the Seiken Setsu art book that was recently released, uh, which is a throwback to my conversation on Trials of Mana and Seiken Densetsu 3. It's a compilation of all of the Seiken Densetsu games to date, which there are actually a bunch more that I never knew about, many of which were only released in Japan, though. But it's like a compilation of artwork from all of them, and it's really nice. It's a very good hardback book. Check it out. It's very good. I like I like art books, so I have like a million of them. That's a very unique recommendation. I, I respect that. All right. Uh, where can people find us? Brendan, where can people find you? Hey, you can find me on Twitter. I am at the Brendo, T-H-E-B-R-E-N-D-O. All right. Ford? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Radhesion with an R, Radhesion. Also, soundcloud.com slash adhesion and adhesion.bandcamp.com. Nice, nice. Trevor? I believe it is Heckbringer uh, at twitter.com, though I will have to confirm that at some point. Cool, cool. I am at A Mindler, which is A-M-I-N-D-L-E-R on Twitter. And I think that's the end of the show. Um, anybody else got anything before we hit the road? I just want to say my left earbud lasted the entire Whoa. show. I'm really proud of it. <laughs> Way wow. to go. My blanket fort is getting a little bit warm as well, but hopefully it did a good job driving down the echo here. I think it did. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Oh my god, my, my AirPod just went bloop, 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 bloop. Ah. I just tore down my blanket fort because I was getting real hot. Yeah, you made a blanket fort. Nice. I took inspiration. Yeah. I used a smaller blanket. It was a lot more manageable on top of not using my gaming headset. That was a much nicer experience. Now, yeah. I, 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 what I do is, um, since it's a small blanket, I actually throw it off of myself when I know I'm not going to talk for a little while and like breathe. <laughs> and when you're ready to talk, I like set back up and I like wrap it over the mic and me i took a top sheet from my bed i wrapped it around my monitors draped it over myself um and basically was just you know a spooky scary ghost in a chair for the last you know hour and a half or however long it took to record this